everybody, and welcome to another edition of Streaming Water Podcast, the podcast where we talk about all things Colorado water. I'm your host, Blair Corning. I appreciate you taking the time to give us a listen today. Uh, today, we're going to talk about lake and reservoir science, which is a, a topic that a lot of water industry professionals and a lot of people don't connect back to, to what they do every day. But we've got uh, Steve Lunt here who's uh, one of the best water uh, scientists, lake scientists in Colorado to, to help us make that connection back to the lakes and reservoirs that are in the state. So I will introduce Steve Lunt and let uh, Steve tell you a little bit about his background. Sure. Thanks, Blair. Yeah, so a um, little bit about myself. I uh, grew up in the Pacific Northwest, uh, went to college there, and then uh, moved out to Colorado in the uh, mid-90s. and um, Decided I wanted to go back to grad school in water resources. And so I went out to Indiana University for two years and got a master's degree in environmental science. And it just worked out that I uh, teamed up with a professor that was in charge of all of the lake and reservoir monitoring in Indiana. And so I worked in his lab for two years and took all the courses and uh, my concentration was on lakes and reservoir management. So, so ever since about 97, I've been working on lakes, monitoring lakes, helping try to improve water quality on lakes. I, after that, I uh, went out back out to the Northwest and became a glorified pool boy for a private, very up-class uh, private lake, Lake Oswego. Oh, yeah? It's a nice, it was a nice place. It was, uh, like I said, a lot of Intel executives, uh, multi, multi-million dollar lakefront homes, and I was, I was the, the go-to person scientist to basically try to improve water quality there for all those people, because they wanted a pristine, beautiful lake in their backyard, not a green, scummy lake. So I did that for two, three years, tons of experience, and then I moved back to Colorado in 2002. And ever since then, worked at Metro Wastewater as a water quality scientist focused on uh, monitoring and improving Bar Lake and a couple other reservoirs downstream of Denver. So nice. How, what brought you from the Pacific Northwest clear to uh, Indiana? They got a good lake program, or did it just fall out that way, or, or how did you end Yeah, up? in Indiana, yeah, they have, it's the School of Public and Environmental Affairs, SPIA, and that's uh, when I was looking at graduate schools, you know, everything from environmental studies uh, to environmental engineering, and then I kind of picked in the middle of that spectrum, environmental science, and SPIA at Indiana University had, had started in the mid-60s, and so it's one of the older environmental schools and had a really um, good program, um, good focus on water, and that's what I really wanted to get into, so... Um, and also it helped that they accepted me. So that's, yeah, I was coming from the Pacific Northwest. I said Denver was as far east as I was ever going to move. And then I ended up in Indiana for two years. So yeah. Yeah. Crazy how things work out. Totally is. What about, uh, what about hobbies when you're not, uh, testing lakes? What are you doing? Or is it all lakes all the time? <laughs> no, not all the time. <laughs> you know, I, I, that's a good question. So, you know, I could say some old man hobbies like gardening and all that kind of stuff, or I could try still talk like in my, in my youth where I go mountain biking and do all the outdoor stuff. But my newest one, I'll say my newest one, newest hobby is uh, making miniature 
government agency logos like uh, National Park Service, you know, like the signs that people go in, you know, the emblem, mm-hmm. the National Fish and Wildlife, BLM. So I started making uh, these little wood signs that kind of like yard art. Wow. Like, what, do you, what do you do it on like a CNC uh, machine or how do you do it? I, I just uh, basically cut out uh, some plywood in that shape of the, like, you know, for National Park Service, it looks like an arrowhead. And then I just basically uh, draw out the, uh, the, 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 the design and I just hand paint them. Nice. I know. They turn out pretty well. So that's oh, my new hobby. Yeah, I want to check those out. That sounds cool. All right, here's a here's a question for you. If you had a theme song, what would you what would your theme song be? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> um, this might be dating myself, but I will go with uh, Gilligan's Island theme song. No, oh, nice. Show? Yeah, it's about water, about being in a boat, about being in an adventure. You know, an adventure. So I like it. All right, I wasn't uh, I wasn't expecting that. I like that. I like Don't that. Make me sing, okay? Let me give you a little ding. That's a good one there. <laughs> All right, let's get into uh, the topic at hand, which is lakes and lakes and reservoirs. This is my take on it. There's a lot of times people in the industry, as far as lab folks or, or managers, administrators, backflow preventer, you know, everyone in the industry doesn't always tie lakes back to what they do, but it is tied back to what they do. So I want to kind of get into some of that with you. So my first question is what, what tests do you do you do to measure the health of a lake? What are you looking for when you, when you go out to a lake? Sure. Um, I, you know, when I go out to a lake, um, it's kind of like the similar thing when you go to a doctor. I mean, I, I go out to a lake and the first thing I do is I, I measure how deep it is. So it's, it's kind of like you go to the doctor. They always put you on that scale to see how much you weigh. It's, you always go to the lake to see how deep. So basically how much water is in that lake. It's a good way to start. And then um, I usually then bring a multi-parameter probe with me to measure its temperature, dissolved oxygen. Um, dissolved oxygen is probably the most important one. That's one thing I got out of my graduate school. My professor said if there was, he had only one thing of information data from a lake you would want to know the profile of dissolved oxygen from the top all the way down to the bottom of the lake and from that set of information you could probably have a really good feeling or a guess of what's going on completely uh water quality wise Uh, so dissolved oxygen is is an important one and and again it's it's important to take temperature dissolved oxygen to have that information from the surface all the way to the bottom. Is it used with the fish or the chemical reactions, or, or why is that important? Well, it's sort of an indicator of a lot of things. Um, it always starts, you know, every single issue you hear about a lake, uh, a problem, an algae, scum, taste and odor issues, um, filters getting clogged, fish kill, all that stuff are just symptoms uh, the problem, which is too much nutrients, mainly phosphorus. And so um, collecting water samples, that's the other thing I do. I do take water samples and have labs analyze them for nutrients, nitrogen, phosphorus. You know, but that's, you know, that's expensive um, and takes time. But if you had a DO profile, uh, you could pretty much get a feel for, well, okay, there's, if you have more than 100% dissolved oxygen, you know, uh, oxygen is coming from algae growth. So then you know algae is growing, which means there's nutrients in the water. 
Then if you're at the bottom of the lake and you have zero oxygen, you say, okay, well, there must have been a lot of organic matter, a big algae bloom maybe a week or two before. It all died and settled to the bottom of the lake, and now it's decomposing, and that zaps the DO. So having a profile top to bottom of dissolved oxygen, you can kind of paint a picture of what the current conditions are and maybe what the conditions have been for the last, say, couple of weeks to a month before that um nice. and so dissolved oxygen yeah is, is one of the more important ones and i mentioned temperature this is the other thing too that you know people don't realize that um the top part of a lake you know when you go down to the shore and you're looking at it and you're in the boat or you're fishing from a dock what you're looking at is completely different water than is what is at a bottom of a lake especially if you're talking anything deeper than 20 feet deep and so it's always important to uh to get information all the way from the surface down to the bottom. So that's, that's a key thing that I always try to emphasize. Yeah, I will. Uh, I'll never go to the doctor uh, the same again after your analogy. I like it. Well, I mean, isn't that crazy? You go to the doctor with a cold and they're weighing you. <laughs> I don't get it. Yeah. <laughs> all right. What, uh, with all this data that you collect, you mentioned some of the tests that you, that you run on the water when you're out sampling a lake what does that data do why why do you what can you learn by studying these lakes in the big picture i guess yeah the big picture um the, the key really is to is to determine if if a lake is getting uh, better worse or staying the same and then why and so usually all you know water quality and the health of a lake is it's all based on what's happening upstream in the watershed, uh, what are what are people doing? Basically, there's a lot of people everywhere. Um, I deal with these reservoirs downstream of Denver, so there's you know a couple of million people just upstream of the reservoirs I work on. So they definitely the to know to get this information and data. It it confirms or tells you what the conditions are are like, and then kind of reflects what's happening on the land all the way up to the continental divide i mean we here in colorado we send water all you know all over the place and um when you study a lake or a reservoir it really does uh kind of tell you what's happening upstream so the the lake is a, a bit of a snapshot into everything going on around it you're saying yeah i mean you, you can have conditions or issues or something going on with the river but Five minutes later, it's downstream, and you got maybe a new set of water coming. But a lake is really a place where all this stuff can go and sit for days, weeks, years, months. And so, um, a lake is really uh, it's a it's a sample of the overall health and conditions of a watershed, and it, and it can sit there, and you monitor it to say, okay, what what is going on? What happened? Uh, how long is this going to last? Um, so lakes are, and reservoirs are a little different in, in that they um, truly are sort of a, a, of a sink for a watershed. And then whatever goes down there, you, you, you can kind of determine if it's good or bad by monitoring that lake. Interesting. All right, here's a question for you. My wife uh, laughed at this when I told her it kept me in touch with the millennials. Uh, but she said millennials aren't on Facebook anymore, and I was I was out of touch anyway. But here's my question: If you could friend lakes on Facebook, uh, who would your friends be? What lakes do you uh, What lakes do you know? What lakes do you hang out with? 
Sure, sure. Um, well, I've been going to Bar Lake, the state park, uh, northeast of Denver. Been going there um, for 18 years. I, 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 uh, I go out there a good 50 plus times a year. So that's definitely one that's true to my heart just because I I know it so well. Yeah. Um, Clinton Reservoir up uh, get, as you go from basically Copper Ski Resort and up over to Leadville, there's a small reservoir. It's got some nice uh, trout in it that I go canoeing and take my son uh, and we do a lot of good fishing there. I grew up in the Northwest, so there's a lot of great lakes up there. Crater Lake is an amazing, amazing lake. It's so deep and so clear that it, it's, it's breathtaking up there. So there's definitely um, a few lakes uh, in, the, in the Cascades that uh, are true to my heart that I would friend on Facebook. Is Crater Lake like one of the deepest or am I making stuff up here? I believe so. It's one, one of the, I can't remember if it's the deepest or the second deepest uh, lakes. It's an, it's an old throat of a volcano and it just filled up with water. And in the watershed, is literally the rim of the crater so it's the area the surface area of the of the watershed is just a titch bigger than the surface area of the lake oh and I remember, so whoever gets in there is just snow melt and direct precipitation onto it nice yeah all right well here's a lake we're uh at our mid-show segment in the news here and uh i got some news about like have you ever heard of alta lake are those the ones by telluride yeah, you man, you are a late guy. Well, let me read. This is from Narcissity, which is some website. I don't know. It's from Michelle Roberts Garcia wrote it. It's called uh, Seriously Sci-Fi Phone Booth Can Be Found by This Alpine Lake in Colorado. Uh, so I'll read you this real quick. If you always wanted to come across a mysterious phone booth that may or not be able to transport you to another world, we've got the scoop on one such spot. Alta Lakes in Colorado is home to a lone telephone booth planted neatly alongside the waters. Uh, though we can't say for sure, it seems very Doctor Who-ish and might be there to access other realms. No one knows how this vintage booth ended up at the edge of the Alpine Lake. It's not like a, it's not like a U.S. phone, but it's like one of those British red ones, you know, the wood red ones. Um, okay, gotcha. Yeah, but it's a magical addition to the gorgeous landscape. Out the lakes near Telluride, Colorado sits among the wilderness with breathtaking views. Three lakes make up the area, and it is by the third you will find the mysterious booth nestled among the foliage. As you approach the water's edge, you will see the vintage structure sitting peacefully near the shimmering lake as if it has been there since the dawn of time. For all we know, it has. We hope that if we jump inside, it will take us on a Doctor Who-worthy adventure. So once this, uh, once this quarantine lifts, I think that's uh, going to be my first road trip is to go seek out this phone booth by Alta Lakes. And check yeah. it out. Have you ever been up to those? I have not. No. Oh. Um, but that's definitely intriguing. Yeah, I definitely want to go check that out. Yeah, no, I do too. All right, let's get back to uh, some more of what you've done with lakes. Can you talk about some of the? I, I mean, I've uh, you've been a colleague of mine since since uh, the Bar Milton Watershed was formed, and I've been involved in that along with you. And I know you've undertaken some interesting projects within that lake and i'm sure others can you talk a little bit about a few of the projects you've done in lakes and reservoirs yeah sure definitely in lake restoration projects are, are fun to do and what you know gets me excited to be outdoors and doing stuff like that so i've definitely have been involved with some um 
I mentioned Lake Oswego, so right out of grad school, I jumped right into the middle of a project that they wanted me to do, and it was an alum treatment. So basically, at phosphorus inactivation, where you put uh, alum in the water, uh, same stuff you use at drinking water plants, and it coagulates, makes aluminum hydroxide, and it binds up the phosphorus. So right out of grad school, I was, and they did it with uh, not liquid, but powder. So all these like cement bag pallets show up, and I had to basically figure out uh, how to uh, make a slurry and, and put this alum into a in part of the lake. And so that was a huge project. Yeah, sounds yeah. like it. Yeah, and it's, it's, a, it's become um, a pretty common tool in the toolbox using alum uh, to help uh, control internal loading of phosphorus and all that stuff. So, that's, so that was good first, uh, good hands-on experience. Um, in Bar Lake, uh, we, we did this test uh, with these limnocrowds. Basically, they're these uh, oh, about 10 foot by 10 foot squares uh, that float at the surface, and then there's a netting that goes all the way to the bottom of the lake and seals off at the sediment. And it basically, it forms this um, microcosm of a lake. And so I did testing inside the limnocrows. The goal was to meet our water quality goals and targets inside these corrals to see if it's doable and if it all works out. So if the if everything works out well, if we reduce phosphorus and the chlorophyll, the algae don't grow as much and the pH doesn't go up then and DO does just fine. And so I spent four years um, trying to get a good data set with these limit crowds. And every year there was some issue. There was uh, one year the reservoir drained. They had to draw it down. So there was basically no water. One Another year I had to wait for a permit. So I missed out that year. Another year uh, the all the geese and cormorants and all the birds found my limo crowds and they would, uh, they would sit on the buoys facing out and their butts were facing in. So then they, they added quite a bit of nutrients to the corral. So, but it was a good experience and got a lot of good data that was needed to help us figure out what, what needs to happen. Uh, lately, last three or four years, we've been doing a carp removal called bio manipulation where you, uh, change the fish community to help improve water quality. So out of Bar Lake, we have uh, the invasive species, common carp. There's too many of them. They can uh, wreak havoc on water quality. And so in the last four or five years, we've removed about close to 6,000 carp. Wow. Uh, and that has been quite a big, big project to uh, take on because they average about 10 pounds a piece. So Wow, about a thousand pounds of carp we've taken out of Bar Lake. How do you get them out of there? Do you do you shock them or net them or? They're, they actually have. I've learned that carp are smarter than me, um, <laughs> and they're hard to catch. But we have tried electricity, where you do electro fishing from a boat. Um, you maybe get a hundred in a day uh, doing that. We've tried a big seine where you stake one end of the seine on the shore, and then do a big arch in a boat this 500 foot long seine and then bring it back to shore and then you pull both ends uh we maybe got a couple of hundred doing that but it took you know 20 30 volunteers to pull the net in and then in the last two years we've got this uh, new technique from minnesota this professor uh, invented this box net where you put it all on the bottom of the lake in shallow water bait them with cracked corn and then at night, when the carp come in to eat the corn on top of your net, you just pull these triggers, weights fall, and the sides of the net come out of the water. Wow. So it's like a 
And we got as many as 1,200 uh, in one night doing that method. It's like a, so, a carb trap. What do you oh, do yeah. with them uh, when you get them? Are you just covered in scales and you? And what do you do with them? Yeah, so it's 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 uh, the next day. You know, you trip it at midnight uh, when they're eating. The next morning, you come and you uh, basically concentrate them. You scoop them out of the net, put them in a small boat, take the boat to shore. You put them in a, in the back of the truck, um, and then we take them to a compost facility way out in Kingsburg and uh get they get turned into rich uh compost that uh, ace hardware stores around the denver area sell so nice kind of completes the cycle of nutrients yeah the carp are still helping still helping. exactly <laughs> yeah good that's interesting well i was hoping i know uh you've done i've taught at the leadville uh, water and wastewater operator school i know i've seen you there because you teach every year and so i was hoping you could teach us a little bit uh, here and give us some cool terms so that when when uh, the whole COVID-19 quarantine lifts, we could go to dinner parties and kind of throw around some of these limnological uh, uh, terms to impress our friends. So can can you help us out with some lake uh, vocabulary that we probably haven't heard of? Okay, sure. Um, well, let's see, I mentioned the top of the lake, Bobby Lake, so there's some fancy terms for those. So the top of the lake uh, usually the mixing part, the top three, four, five feet or whatever, is called the epilimnion. Uh, then the bottom of the lake is called the hypolimnion. And in between is the metalimnion. And so those are the kind of the fancy limnological terms for the different sections of a lake. Um, you know, a lot of people hear the term, oh, I think the lake is turning over. Mm -hmm, I've heard that. A lot of, you know, when I do that class in Leadville, they always say, oh, yeah, the lake's turning over or, they get, they can just, it just looks different. Well, uh, you know, the, the fancy term for that is isothermal profile. So it's isothermal. It's the exact same temperature at the surface as the bottom. So then it can mix and the lake can turn over. The bottom water can come to the top and the top water can go to the bottom. So isothermal just means it's just, it's the same temperature. The whole thing is, is mixing. Usually happens right when ice comes off. You say, okay, it's mixing because it's, it's the same top to bottom. And then in the fall, just before ice comes back on uh, here in Colorado, uh, lakes become isothermal. And then have you ever seen those lakes, you know, when it's really windy and you got those lines of white bubbles? Yeah. So the fancy term for that is Langmuir cells. Oh, yeah? Yeah, Langmuir, Langmuir was a professor and he was coming across the Atlantic way back in the day when he used to travel by ships across the Atlantic and they had them on the ocean. and he basically decided when it gets super windy, there's these vortexes of mixing in the water. And when these two circles come merged together, one's doing clockwise, the other's doing counterclockwise, it brings all the stuff to the surface. And it's this line that kind of forms bubbles and trash. And so um, the distance between the bubble lines kind of, you can formulate how fast the wind is blowing. So hmm. I like to throw that out. Too late, nerdy, but I'll stop at Langmuir cells. We can use that. Lame. So next time listeners are out sailing with your, uh, your sailing boat with your significant other, you can say, hey, check out that Langmuir cell there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, my final question, I think it was my final. We'll see. But uh, what do you think? Why do you think people love lakes? I've noticed I love lakes. People in Colorado flock to lakes. I think, you know, I just heard on, on – uh, the news that people are flocking to Bar Lake now that the quarantine is kind of 
uh, you know, started to lift. Why do you think that is? What, what draws people to lakes and water in general? Well, I think water in general, I mean, I mean, water just means life. Everything needs water. Um, and so I think uh, that's, you know, a huge draw to, to water. Lakes in particular, you know, they're, um, it's open. Uh, when it's calm, it's very peaceful. Um, so there's definitely a beauty to a lake. Um, and, it, and I think it, you know, it's just sort of a very relaxing to be, near water to hear water to see water even to smell water so i think um it's just very relaxing and calming and plus most of us also can relate to some childhood memory you know of the first time being on a boat or the first time going fishing or the first time swimming in open water in a lake yeah and so there's a lot of first time childhood memories around lakes and i think that's another uh kind of draw to to going out and to being near one is, is to, to have those memories again and, and just to be, um, just to enjoy uh, just the solitude and the quiet, simple stuff. Yeah, I agree. Plus, yeah, I see a ton of recreation too on lakes. It's amazing how many, you know, somebody's paddle boarding, somebody's boating, somebody's water skiing, somebody's fishing. Oh, yeah. and so many things one, one little lake can provide. It's, it's incredible. It is, yeah. The, the lakes can, yeah. Recreation is, is definitely a huge draw. You know, most of these upstream reservoirs like Cherry Creek, uh, Bear Creek, Chatfield, you know, people, you know, to the common public, people think, you know, those are state parks for me to go. They're, they're there for water skiing or sailing a boat. But, you know, those are those are for flood control. So people, whenever a reservoir gets built, it, recreation is, is really uh, soon to be uh, sought after for, for a reservoir. Yeah. All right. Thanks for your uh, insights. Now I, I want to know if you're ready for our lake quiz. Oh, boy. Sure. Why not? All right. Good. Now, this is uh, this will test your mettle on, on lakes and reservoirs here. Question number one. Uh, how did the L.A. Lakers get their name? A, the original auditorium they played in was on Lake Street in Los Angeles. B, they relocated from Minnesota, the land of 10,000 lakes. Or C, they were originally called the Lake Trout, but it was eventually shortened to Lakers. What, what do you, what's your answer, Steve? Yeah, I'm going to have to go with, uh, with B. B, they were relocated from Minnesota is correct. Nice work. Nice work. You got your one for one. Nice. All right, number two. Uh, what is the lake next to Lakeside Amusement Park? called is it a lake rota b disrepair pond c crystal lake or d scooter boat reservoir i can repeat those if you need no i i got it i got it so it's a and it's named after the woman that owns i think the uh, lakeside amusement park man you are on today you you are you are truly a lake guy. That is correct. Lake Rhoda is correct. All right, third and final question. You can go three for three here with uh, a correct answer on this. Ricky Lake is best known for her role as Tracy Turnblad in what film? Is it A, Grease, B, High School Musical, C, Hairspray, or D, The Human Centipede? Oh, man. This is going to be a, 
Take your time. This is three for three. And I, Grease, High School Musical, Hairspray, The Human Centipede. Hairspray? Hairspray is correct. Oh. Ah, that was a good. You scared me on that one, but you went three for three. Right. Truly are a late guy. And, uh, <laughs> your your appearance on the podcast proves you are uh, truly a good guy, and I appreciate you, you uh, being on the show today and sharing your insights about lakes and reservoirs with uh, me and the listeners today. So thanks a lot, Steve. Well, thank you, Blair. I totally enjoyed it. Thanks for asking me, and it's always been a pleasure uh, working with you for all these years. Yeah, about water. Right, right back at you. Uh, cool. So. Thanks to our listeners. I hope uh, the listeners have enjoyed today's podcast. Uh, if you did, please tell one friend of yours about the podcast or give us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast player you're listening on. Uh, I'm always looking for interesting guests like Steve to uh, appear on the podcast and interesting topics. So if you have any, feel free to, to hit me up at streamingwater at mail.com with any ideas or, or topics you'd like to hear about. So uh, thanks again, Steve, and, and that concludes uh, this episode of the Streaming Water Podcast, and we will see you next time.